Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, Hello there. How are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles. How you doing? I hope you're well. I have on the program today Matt Bell. His critically acclaimed new novel, Appleseed, is available from Custom House Books. It is the official July pick of the TNB Book Club. The TNB Book Club is an offshoot of the NervousBreakdown.com, my online culture magazine and literary community. It's been around for 15 plus years. Is that real? The book club has been around for more than a decade. If uh, you want to find out more about that and sign up, just go to the nervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. So Matt Bell and I will be in conversation momentarily. The new novel again is called Appleseed. Matt Bell is also the author of the novels Scrapper, and In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods, the latter of which made him a finalist for the Young Lions Fiction Award. Matt Bell has also authored a short story collection entitled A Tree or a Person or a Wall, and he has written a nonfiction book about the classic video game Baldur's Gate 2. His writing has appeared in a variety of publications, including the New York Times, Tin House, Conjunctions, and uh, American Short Fiction, among others. He teaches creative writing at Arizona State University. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow Books, publisher of Count the Ways, the new novel from New York Times bestselling author Joyce Maynard. Count the Ways tells a mesmerizing story of a family from the hopeful early days of young marriage to parenthood, divorce, and the costly aftermath that ripples through all of the affected lives. Anne Hood calls Count the Ways, quote, rich and complex, brilliant and heartbreaking. And Carolyn Levitt calls it, quote, exactly the book we all need now. 
Count the Ways deals with new love, broken marriages, family tragedy, parent-child estrangement, and gender transition, among other things. That's Count the Ways by Joyce Maynard, available now from William Morrow Books. Okay, so let's get to today's conversation. My guest again is Matt Bell. His new novel, Appleseed, is out there now from Custom House Books. It is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. This is Matt Bell's third appearance on the Other People podcast. Really enjoyed catching up with him, hearing about what he's been up to since last we spoke, and learning about all that went into Appleseed, the new novel, which is uh, certainly epic in scope. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here it is. This is Matt Bell, and the new novel, One More Time, is called Appleseed. You know, the story takes place over a thousand years. It starts in the late 18th century uh, with a mythological retelling of Johnny Appleseed. Uh, picks up again in the late 21st century with a story about uh, environmental resistance groups who are trying to stop a, uh, an attempt to geoengineer the stratosphere in sort of a late climate change America. Um, and then the last storyline is 700 years in the future, uh, taking place in like a late glacial North America, uh, where there's sort of one living being living atop this glacier in a research station. Um, and he eventually goes on a kind of a cross-country trek looking for what might be the remainder of humanity. Um, yeah, so sort of the scope starts in 1799, ends a thousand years after that, um, and sort of weaving these three storylines in and out of each other as we go. Okay, what I was thinking to myself as I was reading is, like, like how? Like, this is such a big thought project. Uh, I'm always amazed when people are able to work in this vein. You know, like, it's, it's one of these storylines would be a beast to tackle. Right. But especially the one, the thousand years in the future, there's so much imaginative work that goes into it. Uh, also, so much research, I would imagine. Can you talk a little bit about like, how you got there? And, like, like... How do these ideas originate for you? Like, what what are the original or the early inklings? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny because I think the at the end you're always trying to end up with something that feels like it was designed, but of course it's more haphazard along the way. Um, I really started with the 1799 storyline. Um, the initial uh, inspiration for the book was I was uh, reading like all of Michael Pollan's books. I was you know sort of reading all of these books about about food and agriculture and. Um, I was reading his book, The Botany of Desire, and uh, in that he talks about the apples, one of the, the domesticated um, plants he discusses. And he starts talking about Johnny Appleseed and that sort of folktale, which was something I, I liked a lot as a kid. And in his discussion of it, he starts talking about uh, John Chapman, the sort of historical person that Johnny Appleseed is based on, um, as this American Dionysus or Dionysian figure. And uh, I was out for a run listening to it. And I just thought, well, oh, it'd be fun to write Johnny Appleseed as like a literal Dionysian figure, like a satyr or a fawn. Um, so the initial idea was sort of just like that part of the story, like to start with this sort of half human, half animal uh, version of Johnny Appleseed, um, thinking that would be an interesting setting. Uh, but pretty quickly, it sort of like started getting bigger and sort of feeling these other time zones. It took me a long time to figure out what they were. Um, but I you know, knew I was writing about the environment, I knew I was writing about climate change. Um, and I think 
uh, obsessed with about that's not like a story that takes place in one place. Right. That's not like you can't visit climate change in one specific instance. I mean, you can, but you don't know, like all of climate change, the sort of the totality of it um, in the way that it's sort of spread across time and space. And so like the long storyline was partly a way to try to tell a story about climate change and about humanity's impact on the non-human world um, in a more total way, as opposed to maybe one of those three storylines. Um, but you're right. I mean, they're, they're really each kind of novel length. There sort of is like a three novel build to the book. Um, in early drafts, it was much longer and really was like three 60,000 word books that were sort of weaved together in that way. Um, the uh, the far future one in some ways was easier to write than the near future one is you can kind of make anything up you want if you put it far enough in the future. Right. Like things that are 50 years in the future, you have to extrapolate from sort of current politics and current science. Um, so uh, in many ways, like John's storyline in the middle of the book was the one that was the hardest to, to get the situation right, um, because it wasn't as um, fantastical in certain ways. It had to be more grounded to be believable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, so. First things first, you said that you got the idea for the 1700s, the 18th century storyline while you were on a run. And I know from observing your Twitter that you take these wonderful trail runs out in the desert. Uh, You teach at Arizona State. Is that right? Yep. Okay. So you're living. I've been there seven years or something now. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think when we first met, you were living in Michigan still. Yes. Yeah. I think I, the first time we talked was in Michigan and then I think I talked to you in LA, but I might've already been here then. I think I, you know, was in LA when I talked to you, but I was probably in Arizona by then. Okay. So it makes sense to me. It makes a certain kind of sense to me that somebody, well, first of all, somebody who's trail running, cause I'm a hiking person, right. has some affection for being outdoors. Um, you talked about getting up at four in the morning, which I guess you might have to do in the hotter months just to like right. <laughs> be able to run without keeling over. <laughs> Um, but it seems like there's a logic to that, that somebody who lives in the desert in a place that, you know, it routinely gets like 120 degrees in the summer would have some sensitivity to climate change. Uh, like, am I, is that too simplistic? No, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's a, um, it's a really obvious place to think about in some ways because it's such an extreme environment. Um, I mean, you know, people lived in, the uh, the landscape where, where Phoenix is for a long time, you know, the original irrigation channels that uh, Phoenix relies on were made by the Hohokam people like a thousand years ago. Like people have lived here for a long time, but never in like numbers, like four million people living in this desert valley where there's no water is like sort of obviously um, a fraught idea. And so you sort of notice it and you see it. Um, I uh, I think I've grown really sensitive to the sprawl here because of just the way Phoenix is sort of shaped. You know, sort of this big flat city that's always growing on the edges. Um, there's a there's a part early in the book where the or Chapman and his brother Nathaniel are are standing on a mountain and they're looking out at where they're going to plant that year. And Nathaniel's giving this sort of manifest destiny speech, right? It's like one day all this will be houses and all this will be cities and you know we'll cut down all these trees and make room for people and. Uh, and I think that was partly inspired from like hiking here with my my dad, who has maybe a little more manifest destiny in his heart than I do. And he'd get we'd climb these mountains on the edge of Phoenix and he'd look out at the like the edges of the valley and be like, one day that will all be houses. The city will just keep growing and growing. And I'm like, no, anything but that, right? right. Like that's the last thing I want for this place, is there to be like another four million people here. Um 
And uh, and I I think so that sort of tension between I grew up among environmental people and, and hunters and, and outdoorsmen. And we spent a lot of time backpacking, hiking, grew up in the country um, in, Mich- in Michigan. Between, yeah, in Michigan. Um, that tension between like loving the outdoors and loving the natural beauty and also like seeing its usefulness for people, you know, or the way it can be sort of bent toward toward what people want. Um, I think that's something that's been in, you know, in play in me for a long time. And uh, and Phoenix is a good place to think about it because it's so obvious on the surface that it's happening. Yeah, I feel some similarity there living in Los Angeles, which is the most right. built out city I mean, like you talk about Phoenix having room to grow at the edges in theory. Like, I feel like Los Angeles is just done. You know, there's not even a square. It's barely a square inch of open space in this entire city. And you have 10 million people. I mean, I guess we have a little bit more water than Phoenix, but not much, you know, not much. It's all the same water, right? I mean, it's all this Colorado River project. Like, you know, your water situation is tenuous the same way ours is. It's the... Colorado River Project and the Hoover Dam and all, you know, these sort of, um, it's weirdly linked like the, the sort of future of the cities are, are part of the same system, you know? And in your book, the, the speculative fiction has the Western United States emptying out. Like that's the future you're envisioning. Uh, I'm wondering and this is, I guess, part of a larger question that I have for you around research, you know, for a book like this. But like how much of that hues to research that you may have done or what scientists are envisioning for the future based on data and climate models? Um, I uh, I don't know if I can speak for all climate scientists, but I think um, one of the things that I, I'm interested in is like I think they're there seems to me like you have to stop you trying to make every inch of land sort of productive or habitable by people. Like some of it will have to be left alone so that it can be, you know, we have to have a balance between sort of the world and and the world we inhabit. Um, And so I think one way of thinking about that was like, what if we left some of the land to sort of be itself again? Um, And if that's even possible at the time of this book, like I think right now, if you abandoned the West, the West would regenerate in a certain way. And I think in the future of this book, it seems doubtful to some extent. There's so little living there. Um, I was thinking a little bit about I was trying to use terms, maybe the opposite of the way they're used uh, in mining. Like uh, they talk about uh, like sacrifice zones, which is what the West is called in the book. And a sacrifice zone is the landscape you sacrifice to the mine around it. Um, so like you blow the top off a mountain so you can get the coal or something. And that's like a sacrifice zone. You sacrifice the wildlife that lives there so you can have the coal. Um, and so in, in the novel, they're using that term to we give up the West so we can protect the people who are left, you know, um, and sort of move them to a place that's habitable still in the book or can be made habitable. Um, so I think that was part of sort of thinking through that for me. Um, I was thinking a lot about the national parks. I mean, the West is so beautiful and there's so much, there is a lot of like federal land or land that's not sort of inhabited in the West. Like Phoenix has, or Arizona has a lot more uninhabited land than Michigan does. Right. Um, And I think we like to think about like that land being like left alone or like the Grand Canyon or Yellowstone is like a place that even those parts you drive to or walk through a lot of it's just sort of left doing what it is. But in climate change, that will be less possible. Like climate change is global and affects things. Even where there are no people, the temperature still goes up. Even where there, you know, there are no people, there's the weather changes. Um, 
And I find that really discouraging. Um, and I think some of that vision of the West was sort of like, you know, it begins in Yellowstone in that time zone. And um, Yellowstone is not going to be Yellowstone, even if no one ever goes there again. Like the, the future of Yellowstone is not the present, um, even if no one ever visits again. And that's a, that's a weird thing to sort of know that you've seen something that might not be there in the same way in, in 100 years. I think maybe we're more aware of that than we used to be, I like poignantly, like daily aware of that. Well, I was going to say like radically different. Like that was some yeah. of the that was a sad um, moment for me. Reading is like thinking about like oh shit, like Yellowstone, like it's going to go. Right. Like all these things that I think we take for granted, these natural wonders can. There, there's a good possibility that they're going to be radically altered by advancing right. climate change. Yeah, and um, it's hard to think about and hard to. You really you can't protect them just by like reducing the number of visitors or something like it has to be the systemic sort of change that is going to protect those places like caring about Yellowstone isn't just getting keeping people from bothering the bison or something right like that they need a bigger buffer than just us not driving by um hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature i have a book for you it's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, I, I kept thinking the 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 John storyline, the the you know seventy years into mm -hmm. the future, or whatever it is, yeah. the one that you were saying was the more challenging one to write. Uh, I couldn't help but think of Edward Abbey. I don't know if is he somebody that has been an inspiration to you. Uh, I, I feel like I went on a kick with Ed Abbey not too long ago, where I was reading a lot of interviews with him and watching old f footage of him, but. You talk about an iconoclastic American mm -hmm. writer and somebody who had like a really prophetic vision and like a rebel spirit. He was, I feel like he gets like, I think he's underrated, I think is maybe where I landed after all that. 
Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, it's interesting being in Arizona because he comes up a lot, like sort of among the other people at the university that do sort of environmental stuff for that, like his name's invoked a lot. Um, I've read some, but not a ton of his, um, uh, although I've liked everything I've read. Um, I think the the sort of maybe big famous sort of nature writers that were a big influence were uh, Annie Dillard and Wendell Berry, especially Berry, I think. Well, Dillard and in, in, in certainly in the way of writing nature. Um I think Wendell Berry was someone that I started reading because every environmentalist I read invoked Wendell Berry. And like every everywhere I went, it was sort of like he was coming up and I was like, well, I obviously need to read Berry just sort of like a touchstone for so many people and people in like really different like spectrums. You read like a like a Nick Offerman book and he's talking about Wendell Berry all the time. And then you read uh, like a Paul Kingsnor. I mean, Offerman's obviously pretty lefty, too, but like a, a Paul Kingsnorth, like radical, like environmentalist thing. It's like Berry, 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 you know, Um and I think uh, uh, there's a Wendell Berry book called The Unsettling of America that was um, really helpful and really it just felt right to me. It's a really angry book. It's written, you know, 30, 40 years ago. It's incredibly angry. Everything in it seemed more or less correct. And it was like one of those people who can like see what's happening and no one's listening. And they're just like very correctly yelling at you. Um and I think he formed a lot of like John's personality in certain ways, or, you know, though John's a lot more lost than Barry is Barry's moral certitude is really high. Um, but I think uh, John thinks about him at one point in the book or a line from his that is um, a man with a machine and insufficient culture as a pestilence. He sort of remembers this thing from Barry. And I feel like that's so central to maybe to that story too. like to have all this technology, but not have the culture that lets you use it. Well, is a really central like Barry idea. Um, and that seems uh, all over the book in certain ways, you know, like they, you come up with all these technological fixes for things. So these technologies that make our lives easier, but we don't have a way of integrating them well with the world or with other people. And so they become harmful instead of helpful. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like the, I feel like things change so rapidly that there isn't enough time for the average consumer to even think about what the right. implications might be. You know, that's been the case for me. You know, I feel like I always do think these things retroactively once I'm already addicted to the new technology <laughs> <laughs> i mean you look at how many of us are like trying to figure out how to like live peaceably with our cell phones which is it's sort of a what an antagonistic relationship you know um i got off of uh twitter and facebook in 2016 like either during the election or right after it i was just sort of burned out and uh and took some time off them and uh and it changed the way the news read because like the news would be about like Facebook and Trump and like how like these things were sort of used against us. And there would always be this little addict talk paragraph. They'd be like, oh, but what can you do? We've all got to be on Facebook, you know, like sort of like what? No, we don't have to be, you know, it's sort of, that's a choice we're making. But it was really interesting to see like you had quit drinking. You can hear everybody telling you why they have to keep drinking, you know, and you're sort of like you. You probably don't, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I could go on and on. My my listeners have heard me rant and rave about social media for for yeah. years now, but uh, I do think there is there is some element of the population for work related reasons, and this could include writers yeah. who do feel like they've got to be on. You know, that's like part of their their work and part of the way that they build readership and all that all the rest requires engagement with these platforms and. That's part of it that makes me bristle where it's like, oh, my God, like you're locked in. You have no choice, you know, or if, and I don't like the idea of not having a choice to interact with a corporation, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, in some ways, it's the way the the whole problem we're talking about operates, right? Like you can sort of, um, I think there's a lot of stuff in the book about sort of complicity and uh, in the ways that like you, we're in these systems that we didn't choose. It's not your fault that you were born into like a fossil fuel economy. And you can sort of see that it's bad. And it's also really hard to absent yourself from it. You know, like there's not like an obvious way to not be part of it. Um, only so many people can uh, go live in a commune or something. And that historically doesn't work out that well in the first place. You know, it's sort of the the whole system has to change to give individuals an opportunity to adjust. And so you get in these weird places where you really are trapped in a system that you don't want to be a part of sometimes. Um, and there's other parts, of course, we all like of all these things. Um, so it's it's complicated. But uh, it is really tricky when the the sort of cultural situation or the reality of your life doesn't allow you to make meaningful change. Um, it's not as easy as, uh, like, I know how fragile the water system in Phoenix is and I still have to like shower and use the from the dishwasher and do, you know, like it's sort of like not interacting with it doesn't make it work. You know, um, I've, I've been yeah. thinking lately, I, I, that this feels like something I should posit to you because you probably know more about this sort of stuff than I would, or would have something interesting to say about it. But I, I have these hunches every once in a while, and I don't even know entirely where they come from or how, how to define like the origin, you know, or, or even what they are. Um, it's like this broad kind of vague notion that the future is going to involve intentional communities or I should say, I guess, more intentional communities because these things already do exist. But intentional communities that exist within urban environments, uh, existing, pre-existing communities. But these intentional communities will have value systems and will probably involve activism, possibly climate activism or... It seems to me, and also economic activism, I think that's maybe where it comes from mostly. Like people who band together and or fi find creative new ways to live that might cut against neoliberal capitalism, you know, both as a method of political expression, but also potentially as a kind of necessity, like an economic necessity yeah. taking into taking into account inequality taking into account advancing climate change like do you see what i'm imagining does that... i do i do i think that it seems to me <clears throat> excuse me it seems like there's a version of that already in um like mutual aid community you know and people like you can see that in the northwest this week with you know 115 temperatures in portland people are banding together to give out water and to find pl people places to keep cool and um to find people shelter and stuff like that and i think um, the phrase mutual aid is how I often hear it described. We see a lot of that being organized on social media. Like we need people to help here. We need people to do this. The, the government response is slow or insufficient or purposely, uh, ineffective. Um, and so you see regular citizens sort of trying to, to bridge those gaps and build some of those things. And it feels like that's the beginning of, of that kind of thing. This, this problem can be solved by the community in a way that it can't be solved by, um, buying something or by a corporation or by, or, you know, or won't be solved by those entities. You know, there's, um, I don't know. I think there's an acceptable amount of, uh, not acceptable to me, but acceptable amount of like loss or damage that most corporate or governmental programs as we have them now accepts, 
like this much harm can be done to do this. And when you try to get rid of that harm, things get complicated. Um, but that seems to be the, the future is going to have to entail that, you know, the, um, one of the weird things about climate change is that, the, you know, the U S generator generated, I don't know, whatever their shares, but a huge portion of the, the damage to the environment and will suffer less than countries that aren't nearly as developed. You know, the sort of, if we don't see the task is shared, if the goal isn't to save everyone, it's just going to be rich people living in compounds and then sort of bands of uh, less fortunate people doing the kind of things we're talking about, kind of in like a parable to sower or something, right? You have these sort of like little walls, communities of people trying to take care of each other in a collapsed economy or something. Um, the saving everybody is tricky, you know? I mean, that's the hard part, but it feels like it should be the goal. You know, I think um, one of the things that's really changed in my own thinking as writing this book is just realizing that maybe I was uh, as, as cynical as I can be, I think maybe actually am or want to be a, a utopian thinker. Like how, how do we make this the best it can be for everybody? What's the least harm we can do? Um, something like uh, Ursula Gwynn's like the ones who uh, want to walk away from Omelas and it's like this society is perfect, except there's one person who has to suffer. And there's some people who just can't live in a society where that one person suffers for them. Lots of people suffer for us. And that seems like something we should find immoral. Um, and again, it's hard, it's easier to say it than to not participate in it. But I think finding ways to help each other and finding ways to make that better seems important. And that's work we should be doing. Yeah, no, no doubt. Well said. And I think there's a, there's like a Le Guin, I think it's a Le Guin line about how utopia and dystopia are interrelated. Like every yeah. utopia contains a dystopia and vice versa. And, you know, there's a cynical part of me that can sometimes look at what what's going on and look to the future I have two kids and I can just crumple. I can just be yeah. like, oh my God, right. what are we handing them? What kind of fallen world are we handing to our kids and grandkids? Um, when I'm in like better, brighter moods, I might wonder if the pressures brought to bear upon humanity by climate change might bring out the best in a lot of people, might strip away some of the illusions that have not been serving us. Um, I mean, that's maybe the best you could hope for. It seems that's like the hope, right? You know, yeah. That as as the it becomes clear that the the scope of the problem. I mean, I think even in the not that people have not known what was going on with climate change for a long time, but you know, I started writing this book in in 2016, and even in that time frame, you can see like the intensity of the news coverage going up, and you can see the sort of the climate sort of worry going up. And it just means more people are are facing toward it as opposed to being like, I sort of know that's happening, but I don't want to think about it that much. Um, in my circles, at least, it feels like people are thinking about it a lot. Um, and it doesn't mean we're that much closer to, to real action, but I think things seem possible that weren't possible five years ago. Um, and that seems exciting. Um, I think much is made of like how engaged sort of young people are. I think my college students know way more about the climate crisis than like my parents do. Right. You know, like sort of, you know, many places than I do, even when I've been thinking about it a long time, they're really actively engaged in it because they have to be, because they're going to live in the world a lot longer than we are. Um, and that's both inspiring and also in, indicting, right? It's sort of like, I mean, I've been I'm 40, been voted in five presidential elections. Like this, the world that they're living in is the one I helped make, you know? Like it's it's getting past the point where I can be like, oh, the baby boomers made this terrible world I have to live in. It's like, right. and me, you know, um, I'm certainly done my part. And I think, uh, I hope the sort of in intensity around people like Greta Thunberg and people like that, like 
people reflect that that's not just an inspiring thing young people are doing for us. Like their urgency should be ours um, because they're right. Like it is sort of the world we're giving them is a mess. Um, but it's silly to sort of pretend that's something that like 70 year old people are doing to us, even if they did. Um, but we're also we have done our share at this point. Yeah, I think everybody's got to take an active interest in it and accept a, a sense of personal responsibility. That, yeah. In the absence of that, there, there's no hope. I mean, you know, right, I, right. I think the good news is people are, I think the, the vast majority of people acknowledge that this is happening and it's very dangerous. And that's a big change. Yeah. That's a big shift in 20 years. I think of Wendell Berry's righteous anger. Uh, I think of Edward Abbey's. <laughs> You know, yes. there, there were there were there were people shouting into the uh, uh you know into the wind for a long time on this, and they were mocked and laughed at and ridiculed. Al Gore, um, yeah, you know, and they were right. And okay. man, it pisses me off to think like how different the world would have been potentially had the Florida election in the year two thousand, right? You know, the Brooks Brothers revolt and all that. The recount had the recount not been stopped. You know, uh what kind of world might we be living in now? Who's to say, but it's an, it's deeply frustrating to look back and, and not to pat myself on the back, but I'm sure you were in the same boat. I, I could see that I, I was, uh, not denying that climate change was happening. I mean, I'm, right. I'm no genius. I could figure it out. It just bothers me that there were all these, uh, you know, corporate entities and political operatives who were trying to, quash it when mm -hmm. the data was overwhelming it was plain and there were the earliest inklings of like on the ground evidence and right i don't know it's a it's one of those things where you, you can't burn up too much energy being pissed off about it because you'll lose sure. opportunities to be proactive and get something done but it it's uh it's frustrating to look in the rearview mirror and see how moronic humanity you know a lot of humanity was in the face of all this information. Yeah, that's probably fair. You know, I, I think, um, uh, I think Kim Stanley Robinson speaks really well, a lot of times about like sort of political realities of climate change and of, of capitalism. Um, and, uh, and I think one of the things that I really appreciate when he, he says, you're just in a, a round table with Ezra Klein in the New York times and some other climate uh, scientists and writers. And he was talking about, um, that we'll have to solve the problems with the tools that are on the table, you know, like, uh, like the global political reality is like competing nation states. And like, that's not going to change in the next 20 years when we have to solve climate change, right? Like you sort of like, how, how do we imagine, you know, we're probably not going to get rid of capitalism in America in the next 20 years. Like maybe, maybe we'll change it, but it's not going to go away. So you have to find solutions sort of that exist on the table. And I think, I've been thinking about that a little bit recently because I, I do feel even in my book sort of posits this like, uh, let me reset everything and then I'll think about how we could get out of this. Right. You know, there's sort of a um, it's harder. That's why the near future one's the hard one to write. Like it's the hardest place to think is right up where you are. What do we do in the next five years? What do we do in the next year? What do we do in the next six months? Those are like the really hard things. At the same time, I think the more climate writing i read the more like the solutions are the big solutions are sort of known right like we can't have a fossil fuel economy into the future like we've known that actually for 40 50 years right like that's sort of that's known um unlimited growth capitalism is not going to lead to a sustainable way of life 
for other people for other people or animals. And so um, some of these sort of what could we do to make things better is, is pretty known. It's sort of will and it's and it's not letting our politics freeze us or pit us against the wrong people. You know, there's sort of um, even being mad at like individual Trump voters, which I certainly feel is like still kind of a symptom of being wrong at the mad at the wrong people. Like, you know, like spending my my daily rage on my neighbor's Trump flags is like not the best use of my my thinking, you know, um, that the problem is happening at sort of a different level. And so I, I, I think there is sort of hope as the sort of uh, communal sort of will to do something goes up. Um, I think um, watching uh, the possibility of Biden being a lot more radical than he was four years ago is kind of wild. You know, it's sort of like people have pushed and the, the, some of those possibilities are there that weren't there really recently. Um, and it's just the ticking clock, right? It's sort of just like every minute matters. I mean, that's really, really what I felt in the Trump era, what, Trump era as if it's over. During the Trump presidency was that uh, I just felt the clock ticking. I just felt like every minute was a time. It wasn't even about the like, the bad things he did to the environment. It was that we weren't doing good things, you know, sort of like I could just feel that four years slipped away that we needed. Um, and that feels the thing to be avoided. The sort of incremental pace of progress is not up to the task of climate change. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, the, the phrase inflection point gets thrown around probably too much in political dialogue, but it really is like yeah. this is it like the right there's not going to be any more chances to to mitigate i mean it, w yeah. the way i understand it there's still going to be significant temperature level rise even if we did everything right from here yep. on out but if we don't do a lot quickly then we're looking at what three degrees of temperature yeah. rise and all the disastrous implications that come out of that it doesn't sound like much but you read up on it and it's like oh my god you know like there's probably something about just like Americans not being on the cel on the Celsius temperature scale that is like a huge problem. Like, you know, like you just can't like two degrees Celsius doesn't mean anything to you. You know, it's just like an impossible number to think about. Um, I think the other thing that's uh, maybe part of writing speculative fiction is, you know, the I can f the farther goes on, the more the choice is narrow. Like there were really good choices in the 70s when we discovered climate change was happening. You know, there were um, there were worse choices every year. Um, you know, the kind of geoengineering of the stratosphere that uh, that Appleseed is partly about is a radical, quick fix that will not actually solve any of the underlying problems. And I read 15 news stories about it this week because of the weather in Portland, you know, just like, oh, we're going to have to turn the temperature of the globe down. It's like, well, sure. But like that, you know, um, and that would have been unthinkable in the past and feels like it may become an inevitability. Um, Elizabeth Colbert wrote a, a really good book this year called Under a White Sky. That's partly about that. It's the same sort of image that's in Appleseed. And a lot of the book is sort of, um, we're, we're just getting past the point where we can stop the damage. So we're going to have to mitigate it. And what is like humans are going to dramatically modify the environment to mitigate their dramatic modifications of the environment. You know, like you get into this sort of, but as time gets shorter, that pro possibility probably goes up. Um, and I get, I feel very, uh, <laughs> I don't really want that to happen. And also, I can see the inevitability of, of a dramatic thing happening because, it, it, you know, if you don't do the small things, you have to do the big thing. So Elizabeth Colbert under the white sky, I'm, I, I haven't read it, but I read about it. Uh, I don't want to say I read some interviews with her 
she wrote the sixth extinction i mean she's been yeah. she won like a pulitzer or something for her work on climate she's the yeah. new yorker uh climate change beat reporter essentially and um under the white sky is talking about geoengineering just so i'm clear on this there's going to be a geoengineering project probably in the future if things don't dramatically shift that would cloud the sky basically and yeah i think the you know the version of it that's in appleseed is um uh a little more speculative and fantastical but i think some way of putting reflective particles in the stratosphere that would reflect some sunlight back um something similar to what happens when a huge volcano goes off and we have um the uh the volcano that um famously went off in europe around the time um that mary shelley's writing frankenstein right they have a summer a year with no summer where the sky is blotted out and crops are dying so it's too cold um but some way of like lowering the temperature um it requires you have to sustain it so you have to keep doing it is the thing right so you could do it right now with like you could drop aerosols out of jets right and you could like lower the temperature locally but you would have to fly like thousands of jets all the time putting so you can sort of see like the problem to fossil fuels can't be flying jets in the air all the time putting (laughs) things in the air to lower the temperature and the carbon dioxide is still going up right you're just mitigating it so you don't solve any of the underlying problems and a lot of the like big technological solutions are like we'll do this and then we won't have to change how we live and like that's you know um that's the trick uh i think i got really suspicious of the word sustainable while i was writing this book because sustainable often means like we'll just get to keep doing what we're doing um as opposed to uh actually making things better um and the other thing i think along those lines is uh when you read about um water conservation in the west there's this uh this thing that happens somewhere like phoenix i'm sure this happens in la or did happen in la before it was maybe maxed out um you make a there's this much water right and so you get everybody to put in gravel in their yard instead of grass and you make the showers more efficient the toilets more efficient and the dishwashers more efficient and then instead of leaving that water in the ground you build another neighborhood and so you, you're actually as thing as appliances get more efficient we use more energy we just plug in more stuff or as water gets more efficient, we just let more people live in the place where there's no water. Right. And so we, we right? so if, like efficiency, we have to make things that are more efficient, right? But they don't automatically become lessening of the overall effect. Um, so having uh, a greener house is great as an individual choice, as long as your city doesn't build another subdivision next to you. And I think the sort of history of that is like, that's what happens. You know, the stuff, you never leave the water in the ground. You never leave the oil in the ground. You never leave the, you know, um, it just becomes a chance for growth, which is the, the sort of capitalistic, you know, if, if to leave a resource not maximally used is a failure in capitalism. Um, but we're going to have to leave some stuff unused. Um, yeah. That's another thing that living in the Phoenix in Phoenix is good for because everybody sees the desert as barren, right? This idea that like nothing is in the desert when the desert is, of course, like a vibrant ecosystem full of animals and and has an effect. In, um, but there's definitely uh, from an outside point of view, this idea that like that's unused land, you know, land is not being productive in a certain way. So you just bulldoze and build houses. Well, I think that's, you know, you're getting right to the core of it in my mind, which is the tension between like the ethos, the the capitalistic ethos of 
unlimited growth, growth all the time. Right. Growth is always good. Yep. We need growth. If you're not growing by 10% annually, your company is failing. Um, versus the finite amount of resources that we have on the planet and the damage that the pursuit of unchecked growth has on the environment. Like there is a tension between these two things that has got to, is got to be resolved and right. soon one way or the other, yeah. like it's either going to go all, you know, we're going to go all in on self-destruction or we're going to make fundamental changes to capitalism. And I think it, it would require us to engage with the difficult questions about how we live now that you were alluding to earlier, you know, like these techno technological super solutions that, you know, people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, like that, that kind of person, you know, are likely to agitate for, um, doesn't require us to like stop and like look inward <laughs> Right. At, at how we are relating to the planet and each other and whether or not like whether or not capitalism capitalism is even the best way of doing things which mm -hmm. is like an you know that kind of question is anathema in America where we've sort of like been fed this idea that it's the it's the solution forever and ever you know and I right. I'm at the point I'm past the point where I've uh I've been questioning that you know i i can't help but look around los angeles and the world in general and not wonder if there are saner ways to to live yeah and it's 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 so i mean it's again that sort of thing of of knowing complicity and also not being able to get around it and and all these things do tend to make your life materially better at least in the short term um you know, I have a, a writer friend who's a fantastic speculative fiction writer and is involved in local the local like Democratic Socialist Party and like really just knows all the, all that stuff and is really anti-capitalist and uh, and hasn't sold the first book yet and sort of having a conversation with him and talking about his novel and he's like well how do you know like we're talking about all the like socialist politics of his novel and it's like well how do I get like the biggest book advance I can get, right? <laughs> because you've you, you got to live you write you right. want to write books and you want right. to like you shouldn't have to live in a hole because you're a socialist right like it's like you sort of you should get it should work so it's always that tension between like what you know and then the systems that are that you interact with and um and it's tricky because obviously the answer to not capitalism is not being paid for your work, right? Like that's not the the thing. But it is a these weird sort of tensions where it's really really hard not to function capitalistically in, because that's the society around us, and there aren't really other options for like paying your bills. Um, but uh, but you can decide how much you need and how much you want. Um, but I still think there's. I mean, the case already is like. I mean, all this stuff is related, right? Income, income inequality is part of this. Um, you and I could make our lives as small as we wanted, and Jeff Bezos would still just like make another three hundred billion dollars this year. You know, like no matter how small you make your life, it won't stop him from making his bigger. So, like, the solution isn't that we all have to like live in caves so that we can stop capitalistic growth, but like maybe the people at the top don't need to own everything and have everything and leave us sort of unable to survive if we don't play along. Um, so there's maybe some rebalancing of the economy that allows us to, to start some of that process as well. Um, I think, uh, you know, the most offensive stuff when you're reading climate stuff is all the like bunkers that, um, all the rich people are putting in their houses and stuff while 
you know, like they're going to have these like climate treats. I think Bill Gates is one of the biggest landowners in America. Like that dude's fine. He's going to be fine. It doesn't matter what happens. His kids are going to be fine. His friends are going to be fine. We're not his friends. We're not going to be fine. You know, um, and I think uh, at some point we have to figure out a way to not let a very small percentage of people who will get to continue to thrive even as things get very bad. That that's uh, repugnant and should be repugnant to everybody. And somehow we should band together to keep them from doing it to us. Um, there's a little bit in Appleseed, I think of like, uh, if the rich are going to thrive at the expense of everybody, then I'd rather be nobody. You know, I think there is a, like better we all go down than that. You get to live in your tower and be fine while we suffer. Um, that may be the case as well. Uh, but I think it's probably more likely that some people will be totally fine for a long time and you know other people are going to be in awful situations it's already the case um it's going to be more so i think you're going to have i mean i think it's already starting but you're going to have runs right. on land in places where the climate models say uh you know are they're likely to fare better you know so yeah the great lake states upper michigan you know yeah. I, I feel like traverse city is a hot real estate market right now mm -hmm. you know people yeah. are going to say hey i can live up there in the summer or mm -hmm. you're going to have rich people who, I, like, I, I, you know, what was I joking? Uh, or what was I saying? Uh, I was saying that they were going to have bipolar existences. <laughs> right. So, you know, you spend the, the you know, one half the year in the northern hemisphere and one half the year in the southern hemisphere. You're going to have people buying up all the good real estate and sharing it with their families and friends or businesses or whatever. And then you're going to have... Um, you know, the other half of the year they fly south and they get to go live in Patagonia or whatever. It's a, it's a really minor part of Appleseed. It maybe takes is like three paragraphs of the book, but it was really important to me that there'd be this like sort of spaceport that's being built and that there, you know, there's a, just a backup plan if you can't solve the, uh, crisis, of course, to live in space, which is, you know, um, Bezos is going to check out his new property this week, right? Um, or this month, um, I think uh, it was important to have it in there, partly because I think it's realistic. And uh, there's a part where people are like continually trying to bomb the spaceport. And I was just like, I just feel like that like rage against like rich people's escape plan from reality is real and should be real. And like um, it would be I mean, I don't know, like it's, it will be insane making the part where they get on their arc and go to like another planet in 100 years. And we're just like all left here, which is, of course, a pretty common scientific sci-fi trope. But like I think that, you know, that's definitely the goal, you know, of like Mars colonization is not like half of us will move to Mars and we'll just space out and then there'll be enough room on Earth for everybody. It's like 500 of us will go to Mars and it will be great. Um so I don't know. I mean, this stuff seems so fanciful, but the real life version of it is the thing where Bill Gates owns a Montana and lives there by himself. Um, he's not even married anymore. He'll just live there by himself. I mean, like he'll have all of Montana. That's offensive. Um, you know, I think it's okay to feel rage toward that. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I was going to say like, you know, they talk about people trying to bomb the spaceport uh, as right. like the rich attempt to flee reality. But I think maybe a more, likely nearer term uh you know prospect would be the walled gated communities and then mm -hmm. everybody else on the outside i could easily i i often say this you know to um to people it's like who is that a future you want like even if you're rich enough to afford to live inside the gated community like 
if everybody on the right. outside of the gate is starving and miserable and angry, you're not going to be happy either. And they're going right. to come at some point, they're going to come for you. <laughs> you know, like that's what I could imagine. It's like people saying, Hey, uh, we want in, or we're just pissed off and dying out here. And we're going to come, uh, you know, trample your neighborhood to let you know that you can't ignore us. Yeah. There's a, a Margaret Atwood story. I think it's called, it's called torch the dusties, which is like young people come for the old people. And they're like, uh, like com commune or community, old community where they're living in this walled garden. Everything's good. And the younger generation, the outside are suffering and they like come for the old people. It's sort of the end is sort of a, a similar generational thing. Um, you know, I, th I mean, the other uh, thing about this is like our walled community is is like the nation state, right? The sort of the U.S. border is one of those things as well. And um, climate refugees are, are going to go up, not down. I mean, I think that's that's a permanent feature of the I don't know, geopolitics for the foreseeable future. And um, and, you know, I think that's that's some of. It's easy when Trump is in, in in power to talk about the way he deals with the border and then you you see there's not there's not an easy solution when someone else is in power and our um our unease with our complicity and what happens at like the southern border right now no matter where you're on their political spectrum is part of that anxiety that you know you're in the you're in the walled garden you know you're in the part where right now it's safe and other people are not um and uh and no one's solution is like let everyone in you're not no one's solution but mostly the solution. the solution that's likely to happen is not let everyone in and share what's left. Um, and that's, I, there's a, a moral failing there that I think is felt even as an anxiety. If you, you know, people that wouldn't name it would still be feeling it. And sort of it's a reluctance to talk about it is partly that. Um, but yeah, I think that metaphor is, is wide ranging, you know, that you can make the unit of the walled garden different sizes, but like, it absolutely exists. And most of us are, are inside one or another, you know? Yeah. I have debates with people around things like immigration and, uh, policing in, in like yeah. recent, in recent times, like law enforcement in society. And, you know, these things have been called into question. Uh, you talk about the Southern border. I've had debates with friends of mine where they're like, you know, there should be no borders. Right. And I'm like, really? Like, Okay, that's like a radical idea and kind of utopian, and I like it on that level. But I'm like, I don't know if it's practical in the world as presently constituted. Like, if you just right. completely opened everything up, what would the result be? I cannot imagine that it would not involve a lot of like negative consequences, chaos, and social dis disorder. And um, I don't know. I think it could be a messy thing. I'm not 100% sure, but it, I can easily imagine how it could be. Likewise, there are people who are like, abolish the police. And I'm like, okay, I know there's a lot of problems with the police. Uh, I think, we, you know, that's been proven over and over again, definitely needs change. But to get rid of it completely, like, does that mean there's no law enforcement? Is there any civil society on earth that is able to function without any law enforcement mechanism? Like maybe there is, and I'm missing it, but I I don't think so. You know, like I don't know. I, I these are the games that I play with, you know, with myself, kind of thinking about it in in my head. Like there's going to have to be change and new thinking around these sorts of um, issues and ideas. But I don't know if uh, if like the extreme 
solutions are necessarily always practical, uh, at least for now. I think, um, I was saying like neither of those two things are, are, are my area of expertise. And I, I know there are people thinking really hard about, about these. I think one part of it is like in society as cur- currently constituted, I can't see how that would work. Right. And so like, that's part of it, right? Like there, it, it wouldn't. So it's like other things change as well, or it have to. And I think this is one of the things that fiction is useful for. You know, I don't think fiction has to be utilitarian, but um, a utility it does have is the ability to sort of imagine other ways of being and imagine otherwise, as, as Daniel Heath Justice says. Um, and I, you know, there's sort of uh, uh, subgenres of, of, of speculative fiction, like solar punk and hope punk and things like that, and trying to like instead of writing a dystopia, trying to like write people already living in a future in which like climate change was mitigated, or here's how people will live well in, in 50 years or how things might change to do that. Um, and I think those things are important. I think if we can't imagine living in a world without the police, then we won't get to one. Right. But you could, you could obviously, you could write a novel where you worked it out. Those problems you talk about, like, well, how will communities police themselves? It's like, well, there'll have to be some other mechanism because you're right. It won't just be everybody takes everybody's stuff and kills each other in the streets, um, <laughs> which is now what most of us are doing anyway. So, like, the police aren't stopping me from killing my neighbors. I'm just not going to kill them. You know, like, so, like, it's sort of it's. But anyway, someone could you could think through those problems and imagine solutions to them and try them out in fiction, which is a nice scenario planning tool. Um, and I think uh, so there is sort of a use for for writers to imagine into these thorny, complicated things. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I can't talk maybe a lot about what I'm working on yet, uh, without taking up like an enormous amount of time. But I think one of the things I'm trying to do in the work I'm doing now is, is to think about that. Like there's no way to like move the things that we take for granted in our society into one I've made up. If I've made up a speculative society, it can be function different. And so why not, you know, there's going to be some problem in the book, but other parts of it can change productively. If the book isn't about policing, for instance, why not imagine a better kind of policing than what we have and just have that implemented in the book? Um, You know, I think it's interesting to sort of do things that aren't the focus of the book that are good speculative work. Um, You read science fiction novels from the last 40 years. Most of them are living in in where humans exist in a thousand years. They've solved climate change because otherwise the humans wouldn't exist. You know, they're sort of uh, I just read a CJ Cherry book um, and they're, you know, they're living on another planet and they're like, oh, we can't do like fossil fuels like we did on Earth because like if we do that, you know, like sort of. So there has to be another solution. All of the Gwyn's books from the 70s have people who are using like solar cars on another planet because what kind of idiot would burn all the coal on this planet, you know, and it's sort of like you sort of, you know, it's always like there is some way of just like, that's not the focus of the book, but people wouldn't exist in this highly advanced space faring society if they were also burning every inch of oil they could find, you know? Um, so it's sort of an interesting task of that kind of writing is like, you can solve some problems, even if they're not the focus of the book. Like, you know, the the book doesn't have to be like, look how dire this thing is. It can also say, like, well, let's solve some of these other things and we'll tell a story in this society. Like, what would it look like to be what a detective novel set in a future with no police look like or something? Right. You know, like there's ways to, like, do interesting things. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's one of the fun parts of writing these kind of books is like trying to solve the unsolvable problem. You know, and again, often it's real simple, right? Like if you don't build a 
uh, an economy based on uh, long haul trucking and cheap gas, <laughs> you solve a couple of problems right away. Right. You know, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, your answer, you're talking really eloquently about a question that I was going to pose to you, which is why, if things like climate change and climate science are of such paramount importance to you, uh, why turn to fiction versus right. nonfiction? And you just explained a lot of why. I think another aspect to it. Uh, would be that when it comes to uh, issues like these that have a lot of heat and tension and emotion around them, writing about them, fic you know, in fiction can give people a way in, like gives the, yeah. the kind of breathing room that you might not get in a work of nonfiction where, you know, someone's trying to advance a particular agenda or make a case. Um, and, or as you say, they, they might, uh, I don't know, it's kind of like a spoonful of sugar. It might be easier to imagine a world without police if it's in a futuristic detective novel than if it's written by somebody who's like on the front lines as an activist or a politician right. who's agitating right now to make those kinds of changes. Yeah, I think that's right. That's sort of the the defamiliarization part of fiction that gets talked about so much is is really useful. Your guard just goes down because you're encountering it this other way. Um, I you know I think we've had like a really like uh, a serious conversation about serious things, and um, at the same time, I you know I think uh, part of the reason to write it in fiction is because um, fiction is is fun to write and it's entertaining and it's a you know it's playful in ways. I think it's I, I as serious as this book is, I think it's also like maybe my most fun book. Like, I mean, I think it's playful and accessible in a different way and, and, and about wonder in a, in a certain way that really matters to me. And, and there is, I think a lot of like beauty in the book and sort of trying to like depict those things, even in these spaces, it feels really important to me. Um, but it, you know, like there's, uh, like a car chase early in the book, right? I'd never in a car chase scene before. It was fun to write a car chase scene. Like some of the, like getting me to think about this stuff, one of the ways to do is to do it in story because then I, you know, like as you're solving all these problems of storytelling or you're having fun making a certain kind of scene, um, you, you stay in the chair and keep working on these problems in your brain. Um, and I think, I mean, I felt as I was writing the book, not calmer is not the right word because I obviously don't feel like calm about climate change, but I felt less anxious because I was spending time with it and thinking about it. Um, you know, like when you're sick and you don't go to the doctor and you just feel like, am I dying? And then you go to the doctor and you're like, well, I'm sick, but I, now I know what it is. Um, like the sort of like staying with it was good. Um, and I think fiction is one of the ways for me that I can make myself stay with it. I mean, I did read a lot of climate science, but um, figuring out the intricacies of the plot was also a way of just like sitting with the ideas until I figured out what I thought about them as opposed to just what I'd read about them. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the writing and reading of fiction is useful in that way. Um, also, I mean, I don't know about you, but there's so many things I care about politically that I first encountered in fiction. Like I, I, there are a lot of ways in which, or, or fiction prepared me to hear about it in the news in a certain way. Um, my wife and I watch Jeopardy like every day and, uh, she's always like, why do you know that? I'm like, oh, I've read it in a novel. I know this little bit about that. I know this little thing and these little, and then when I read the news, I'm like, oh, I know a little bit about that historical period. I read that book or something. And these like, it, it has been a way of like preparing me to hear the news in a certain way that's uh maybe underestimated uh when you read widely you just get exposed to a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different ideas that like prepare you to think instead of just accepting or rejecting like what people are already telling you there is sort of like a framework that it gives you um 
But yeah, for me, a lot of it is like so much of the stuff was fun to do or fun to think about or do these sort of mythological retellings in the book was like it was an enjoyable way to spend my days. And it kept me thinking about the big issues that I was interested in as going, of course, discovered a lot of them trying to solve plot holes, too. Right. Like the political future of the book is a plot problem that ended up me thinking really hard about like Naomi Klein's shock doctrine and things like that and disaster capitalism. And like I learned about that incidentally and then dug into it because it was solving a world building problem I had. And then I came out knowing like a lot about disaster capitalism that I might not have ever really understood what was if I hadn't built one. Um, that's useful. So, and when you say built one, you talking of earth trust. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like, and for people listening who might not have read, uh, the shock doctrine or who might not be familiar with the term disaster capitalism, this is, um, you know, a theory, a theory on capitalism that when there's a big natural disaster or some other kind of disaster, there are forces within capitalism who seek to profit off of that disaster. So just as an example, like after Hurricane Katrina, you might have land developers come in and buy up all of the Ninth Ward on the cheap and then build uh, condos on it or whatever it is, you know, like uh, find a way to make money off of um, catastrophe, essentially. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think, you know, like a classic example is Halliburton after the Gulf, the war in Iraq, right? You sort of you, you cause a disaster, then you profit off it, you know, and I'm really, um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I think, you know, one of the things that's really important to me in, in Appleseed is that uh, Yuri Miroff, who runs Earth Trust in the book, is is like the antagonist, but not a villain. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Like I don't I like her goals are her girls. We're going to hear people with her goals all the time on the news in the next you know decades of people who want to do these big technocratic techno utopian solutions to climate change that don't require other kinds of systemic change. And she uses this shock doctrine disaster capitalism sort of moves to do kind of a benevolent benevolent and air quotes takeover of like half of the country that allows her to sort of control the food system and then unilaterally set up this geoengineering plot um but she doesn't believe democracy is up to the task that it's it's her sort of gaining enough power to to do this thing that needs to be done um but it was interesting to think through that. It seemed like though I don't think there are any examples of disaster capitalism being used well in the in the actual world, you know. But like, if you were trying to free climate change solutions to climate change from ineffective government, maybe this is one of the ways you could do it. Is sort of the thought problem of that her actions in the book. Um, and it was interesting to think through that, you know, the sort of watching a 50-50 Senate take all of the climate change out of the infrastructure plan while the infrastructure melts down all over the country does not make you feel like, oh, democracy will work this out on its own, you know? Um, and so it was interesting to think about those other solutions, even if I don't really want those either. Like it was still like to have the contrast in my brain and to say like, you know, if not this, then that maybe, you know, or at least that's one possible way. It's a really interesting question that I think is very much of the moment is whether or not, and Biden talks a lot about this, is whether or not democracy is up to the task and can yeah. it move quickly enough to address the problems when the clock yeah. is ticking? Uh, that's That seems like it's has yet to be answered. You know, like we're in the process of Great. getting the answer, but we really, I don't know, it's an uncomfortable question to to entertain in some ways because 
what's the alternative if the answer is no? Right. Is I mean, that's the right. That's, <laughs> I don't know. That's, yeah. that's what you're asking yeah. in the book. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what Yuri's all about, you know, and. And, you know, in some ways, the real life shows some hope, right? Like, uh, like the the Green New Deal was a was an aspirational, like, these are the best case things. And we'll, maybe we'll get some of these when, like, AOC was elected for the first time. And then it was essentially the platform of the Democratic Party in the next presidential election. That's that's an incredible change. You know, something that was absolutely impossible a couple of years before. Um, you see other things like I don't I don't know. I won't get like the statistic right, but the number of Americans who said they were like allied with black lives matters, you know, four years ago when we first started hearing that term was really low. And then last year was like 80% of Democrats, right? Like, so you, they, these things can move really rapidly, um, but they have to move really rapidly. So it's sort of like, it's a complicated thing. You need like uh, you need public um, sentiment to shift really quickly. And then you need the people in power to follow it. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's possible. I don't, you know, I'm not, uh, Certainly not like counting out democracy's chances, but like they require a lot of things to go well by a lot of people quickly. Well, um, on the on yeah. the optimistic side of the ledger, and it's a grim form of optimism. But <laughs> if more and more people experience 120 degree summer days, and if more and more people are breathing soot from wildfires for three months every year public sentiment is going to change. And like that, that is like in a weird grim way, it's something that gives me hope because, you know, people aren't going to believe scientists, you know, too many people are not going to believe scientists uh, on the news trying to talk sense to people. Um, right. More and more in our country and in the world, people seem to have uh, their own reality or believe they have their own reality. But when you're baking at 120 degrees, uh, in June, there's no, you can't, you can't talk that away. <laughs> no. And, uh, maybe that'll, you know, maybe that'll have an impact and people across the political spectrum will see the wisdom in making these changes quickly. I, I hope so. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's unfortunate how many things you have to wait till they're like on your door before you're, you'll do anything about them. Um, but it's on our door. So let's do it. You know, <laughs> right. It's, it's yeah. I mean, it's yeah, impossible not to see or understand at this point, you know? So I want to ask you, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk. Yeah, let's do it. Some more about like aesthetic concerns um, mm. in this book and just in general for you as a writer working um, with, a, I think, a like working within a framework, like all of your work, like any writer, their work, you know, when you consider the entire body of it is, is of a piece one way or another, but, um, writing about the natural world was something that you talked a, a bit about earlier. And you mentioned Annie Dillard and you mentioned Wendell Berry for people who are listening, who might be working writers or aspiring writers. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about how to write nature? Yeah, I think, thank you. That's a great question. Um, I think one of the the things that was really instructive for me was moving to to Arizona from from Michigan. You know, I, I lived in Michigan until I was thirty three or thirty four. Uh, I'd been there my whole life, uh, mostly in the same place. Um, and then I moved out to Arizona, and so the landscape is so different, right? The animals are different, the the seasons are different, the weather is different, the plants are different. Um, and so one of the ways we made ourselves home, made this home, was like to to spend a lot of time out in the out in the 
uh, trails out in the national forest and in the desert. Um, and uh, my wife is a, a birder, and uh, she took a master naturalist course here, and and you know has learned so much about sort of the the local flora and fauna. Um, and one of the things you do with that is you you know when you first move to a new place, it's like the desert, and that's what you see. You just see the desert, and you don't see the parts of it. You don't see the things. Maybe you learn a couple plants really fast. You learn like the saguaro, right? And you see your first chuck wall, and you're like, oh, there's these big lizards, a rattlesnake. You already know the rattlesnakes will be there. Scorpions in your house, that kind of stuff. Um, and as you spend more time and you learn more, you learn like the next layer of the sort of the wild place, you know, it's sort of like, here's this animal. There's a, I only see them. If you run before dawn in the desert, there's a banner tailed kangaroo rats. They like vanish at first light. Like they're only nocturnal. Right. And you see those, you're like, I didn't even know these were here. I spent all this time here and I didn't know these were here. Um, you learn the names of the the other plants, the cat claw mimosa and the, you know, these sort of things that you didn't know were there. And every time you learn a new thing, you see another layer of it and it just sort of keeps opening up um, and it becomes fuller and it becomes more alive. And uh, and you also see if you go to the same places, the way it changes over the year um, and all that's to say, I think trying to make some version of that in, in the nature writing in the book, like trying to be concrete, try to name things what they are, or try to let let. Uh, especially in the Chapman parts of the book, let him like inhabit a place and sort of be with it and sort of um, to let that complexity sort of come out. Um, you know, I think uh, one of the things most of us don't do on a daily basis anymore, other than maybe like our pets is like touch another like living thing outside of our home. Like, you know, like you're not getting dirty every day, right? You're not in the dirt. You're not touching, you know, all the plants in the desert are dangerous. So you don't touch them. You know, it's sort of like the, your contact is low and like trying to like, like knowing things and, and seeing them and paying attention to them is like one way you make contact with them. And I think that trying to depict things as they are matters. And then also trying to make them sort of wondrous you know we've talked a lot today about like what it would take to like save the world but i think like if you don't feel affection for it or don't feel wonder toward the non-human world then then you won't want to save it um and i think that trying to get that on the page trying to show that these things um have sort of inherent value outside of their interest to humans and are, are sort of wondrous and, and beautiful and interesting seems really important to me and in every stage of the book even in in C's time in the far far future um when he's with the, his his tree and he's caring for it it's like he, he only has one thing in the world to wonder at and so that wonder is really total you know um and uh and that felt really important to me like a lot of his plot is just caring for like one the one living thing there is um and if that's all you have you should take good care of it um, and so really, try, I guess that's sort of my approach to nature writing here, which is to, to try to be close, try to be attentive, try to name things um, and try to let them exist on the page, even even beyond their like plot function or they're they're not there as like an objective correlative for like Chapman's emotions or something. Right. Like they exist independently of the human actors in the scenes. Oh, yeah. I'm just like I'm flashing to like uh, like my favorite example of this or one of my favorite examples of this is the work of Terrence Malick. Like all of his cut, all of his cutaways to nature in his movies um, do that very well. Like the animals yeah. will just be like looking at the camera, and it's the middle right. of like a, you know, I'm thinking of like the thin red line where like you know human oh. beings are like blowing each other up, and then he'll just cut away to like some animal I've never heard of before. You know, some I, it was in the Pacific Theater, so I don't know some island animal, and it's just looking at right. the camera quizzically, like what the hell's going on? <laughs> what was that noise? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's I mean it's it's sort of wonderful, you know. I um, 
I think one of the the things I've taken the most from like trail running is just, you know, going to the same places over and over, um, especially during the pandemic where I just roamed a little less. You know, I sort of I ran the deserted trails within, you know, 40 minutes of my house or something. Um, and I got to know where like the like the animals were going to be, you know, like this is the place where you see the coyotes. This is the only place you'll see a javelina in this park. This is a place where uh, I don't know if you know Harris hawks. They're like the only raptors that hunt in packs. They have like little family units and one will like sit on a saguaro and the other ones will hunt on the ground. They have this sort of like, um, but there's a family of them near my house and like, I, I know where they're going to be and I see them. Um, and one of the things I think you, you learn or I learned from having a, maybe a birder as a, a partner is, um, a lot of the animal noises you hear animals like warning other animals that a human is there, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, Oh, that bird song. Like, but like every noise you hear is a bird being like, watch out. There's that big dumb animal um <laughs> and the hare hawks do that they're sort of like there's like they make this noise that i think is like a warning it's sort of like oh that guy's lumbering through here again you know um but if you stop and you sit still they stop making those noises right like animals will sort of like go back to being themselves like you're not interrupting them and if you never spend any time in that sort of like pause state the the world's always reacting to you as opposed to being itself um it seems really great to sort of stop and, and look at what it is as opposed to disturb it, you know? Um, well, I think I, I relate to you a lot, uh, because I think we're wired the same way. Like you're a person who needs motion. Uh, there's just some of us who have to have this, like you've got, yeah, to, yeah. you've got to run, I've got to hike. Uh, but both of us are out in nature. I think that's a very, uh, specific decision. It's, I could, I could go for a walk around the city you could go for a run in your neighborhood in like right. a more suburban, uh, which I do, but it's like, you know, not the same, right? Not, not like the same. Are, that's exercising. That's like a different, it's a different function. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I, I sometimes hear people say like, why well, like, I don't like hiking and I'm right. like, you don't like to walk in nature. Like, <laughs> like what's not to like, you don't have to go up and right. hit. I mean, you could be on a flat surface in the woods. It's not like you have to climb a mountain, but, uh, yeah. I really believe that there is something like medicinal. I don't want to get too precious about it, but like it, without any contact, especially some, as somebody who lives in this big, huge city, yeah. without any regular contact with the natural world, I think you really lose a lot. And it doesn't even like, look, I'm in Griffith Park or, uh, you know, right. up in the Hollywood Hills. It's not like I'm... <laughs> It's not like I'm out in, in quote unquote nature in the way that I think most people would imagine it, but I, I see coyotes and yeah. every time I do, it's a thrill. Uh, yeah. occasionally I'll see a hawk and mm. you, you might know more about this because, uh, you're, you as you say, your wife's a birder, but, uh, sometimes like I've seen hawks, they'll land low to the ground on mm -hmm. like a stump or, you know, yeah, it's a stump that I saw the one that's coming to mind. And I was walking past it. It was just sitting there and it was right. totally chill. And I was like, whoa, I thought like, you know, usually you're thinking of hawks either circling in the sky or up on a high tree branch or something, but it landed low. And I just had this moment with it where I was just like staring at it and it was staring at me and it didn't seem the least bit unnerved. I guess it was probably like, I can fly mm -hmm. away if this asshole comes at me. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's, uh, it's nice to have those points of contact and also like, that you're not as interesting as you think you are to it, right? Like it's not, you're not moving the world all the time. It's good. Yeah. I don't know. I get a lot from it and I, I love the pictures of, uh, 
the desert, you know, you going on these great trail runs, like the, you know, the photos that you take, uh, especially when you're at like Vista points, you know, they're pretty spectacular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, damn, that looks good. I'd love to go, you know, wherever he is. And right. Uh, I also have a sense and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're a disciplined human being. You would have to be, if you're getting up at four in the morning to go trail running and you're also productive, you're publishing books pretty regularly. You've written, um, a big book, you know, that essentially weaves together three novels into one. Um, you know, that all of that is a heavy lift and you're teaching, you know, you've got a lot going on and you're, you're managing to handle it all. So am I barking up the right tree? Like, are you type a, like, do you have like a very orderly system, uh, to your I life? I do think I'm, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I absolutely am a time waster and have my lazinesses and, and I think it's good. I think actually one of the things that's been maybe recentering the last couple of years was like trying not to think of what I'm doing in terms of like productivity. Right. Like, it's like, I'm not a factory. It's okay. Like just, you know, like do what I want to do. Um, a lot of writing gets done partly because I like to write like a day I write is better than a day I don't write, you know, like I like doing it. So it, I think like that helps a lot. Um, I do think routine, um, helps with all that for me like i i do tend to write about the same time of the day i do have trouble writing if i don't get to do it then right it's hard for me to do it you know i write in the mornings um i exercise as soon as i get up here but that's because it's hot out like i I mean i you know i'm actually lazier about it in the winter when i don't have to like here it's like man you get out of bed at 4 or four fifteen, or you don't get to go outside today you know? <laughs> like, okay wait no, so stop there's... i want to stop you there like so you're getting up at four o'clock in the morning just to be able to go outside what what's the temperature at four o'clock in the morning it's always like 30 degrees less than it is during the day so when it's 115 it's 85 at at four fifteen in the morning um it doesn't cool off like until the morning so it's sort of like you can't run like the sun like when students move here who are runners they're always like i'll run in the evenings and i'm like you won't because it's still 120 degrees out when the sun goes down right like, it cools off overnight um and so uh, it's still pretty hot but partly it's just like not having the sun on you like you know the the that hour that you can run before the sun comes up is a lot more pleasant than once it's up in a cloudless sky and just beating on you um there's uh, there a couple of years ago, I was running uh, like some 50K ultra marathons, which is when I was just training a lot. And I would do these like 20 mile runs in like August. Um, and I would get up at like 345 and drive out to the desert and go running. And it was still so the ground was so hot from the night before that it was radiating heat. Like I would be climbing, I incline the trail and it was like. Uh, you know, in Star Wars and Empire Strike Back, that device they put Han Solo on and like burn his face, like the trail was like that. Like you could feel it like easy bake ovening you as you were climbing. I mean, it's wild. It's a wild environment. I mean, it's it's very intense. Um, but yeah, I think generally to go back to your other question, I think uh, routine enables that for me. I, I, I think when I was young, I thought being a writer was being like a, I don't know, like a Henry Miller or Jack Kerouac. I was going to live this like wild life and write about it or something. Um, but I think deep normality is actually like the thing that enables me to like think and be weird, you know, sort of like you keep these, this stuff steady and then you, you do that. Um, how was, you know, my, my, uh, wife's a very serious and intentful person and, um, has always had some kind of like nine to five ish kind of job. So, you know, like there, there's sort of a routine baked into our days that is mine are more amorphous, you know? So it's sort of good to like, this is the time I cook dinner and stuff is built into just being a person with her. Um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I really thrive on that in a certain way. 
that said, I don't know if you felt this during the pandemic. The thing I missed the most maybe was spontaneity, you know, like just a friend being like, do you want to go get a beer or something? Like, I mean, I didn't have an interaction with another human that wasn't planned for like a month for a year and a half. And I was like, even going to like the grocery store or something was like you planned it for two days and then you went out. You know, I just like I deeply hated like the down to like that kind of planning. So somewhere in the middle. But yeah, I don't know. I think served by routine. I think, yeah, I mean, deep normality and <laughs> e- I can you you made a verb of this. So I'm going to repeat it. Easy bake ovening yourself <laughs> during exercise. Like that's been my experience too. You need a ritual. You need kind of predictability. I can maybe sometimes take it too far. Mm-hmm. Like I can easily fall into a, like a routine. I'm, I'm in that routine. So it was like, I'm like, Oh my God, I'm walking the dog exactly like I did for the last 300 yep. nights. Like same time. Do people, I yeah. feel like I see the same people on my same route. And oh, they, absolutely. And they must and look they at shift me with you. Like they're like, when you change like the time of year changes, so you go a different time of day and they shift with you yeah. and you're like, Oh, I'm just on like a rhythm with this guy in my neighborhood. And it's so like for years and years and years of just being like, Hey, every day. <laughs> well, I have this speaking of which there's a guy in my neighborhood and I'm not sure. I can't say, I'm not sure where he lives. I worry that he lives in his car. Uh, it's, you know, I don't know. I could be totally wrong. Uh, I just, I see him and I never know. He's always like standing out on the street. Sometimes he's drinking a beer (laughs) and I've started talking to him and he's the nicest guy. It turns out he's a writer. He's got a project that he's trying to sell in Hollywood right now. And he's like playing this waiting game. And I've been there before. Any writer who's tried to sell their work has been there before. So we just shoot the shit and commiserate. Um, and I realize as I think about it, I'm like, I've been seeing this guy either driving around my neighborhood in his car or just like kind of hanging out in the street for years now. Right. And it's now advanced to the point where we're on a first name basis and like know a little bit about each other. And like, we'll still, you know, stop and talk for 10 or 15 minutes, but he's become part of like the furniture of my life and vice versa. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, I guess that's an outgrowth of having a, uh, a routine. Sometimes it can yield these things. It might not have otherwise happened. Yeah, there's a a noticing you don't do unless you spend a lot of time in your lap. I mean, I feel like that's one of the things that um, if you had the the time to sort of to do that or you're working from home during the pandemic, it's sort of the privilege to be in one safe place. um, Everybody did all this noticing, like everybody got to know the animals that live in their backyards or like, you know, um, I think, you know, uh, Jess worked from home through the uh, still working home mostly. um, And uh like she can identify the individual birds that like come to our yard. You know, she's like, these are the three curved bell thrashers that live here. And this is the one with this beak. And it's like, you know, they've, they've stopped being birds. They've started being like individuals. And it's just by having time to have that attention, right. Just she sits on the backyard and works on her laptop and like sees them living, you know? And, and um, I don't know, it's pretty, it's pretty great to just realize this space that's been behind your house for a couple of years has these individuals in it or your neighbor has these individuals in it or these people, you know, it's so easy to be disconnected in an American city or an American suburb. You know, it's nice to have it sort of populate with things that are worthy of your attention and always were, but you didn't give it to them. Yeah. 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 And I, 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 I totally uh, relate to this notion of nature revealing itself to you in layers. You know, you'll notice yeah. one thing and then you'll notice another. Uh, I find too, just like if you, if you hike a certain trail or you run a certain trail or take a certain walk in your neighborhood, 
over and over and over again over a long span of time you start to pick up things about like the rhythm of the seasons like oh this tree sheds its leaves this time of year Mm -hmm. or the air smells this way this time of year and like oh yeah this is great this is when the wildflowers bloom and you know you start to be able to look forward to these things and and you would never get it unless you were out there consistently um and i I, i'm not even necessarily looking for it in a specific way it's just kind of it happens enough eventually it gets through my thick skull (laughs) yeah i you know it's good i think especially with so many people you know moving around the country going different places for work just because the way things are it's it can be very isolating to be in a place where you don't know the rhythms you forget that how much you relied on like just the the seasons to guide you emotionally living in the midwest or something right it's like this is the time of year for this this is the time of the year for this and then phoenix is like hey it's hot and sunny right i i almost feel like we talked about this the last time we talked but like i had this sensation of like time not passing when i moved here and i couldn't shake it and it it became this like weird melancholy the first like year i was here where i was just like like the first semester ended and i had no i didn't know like emotional preparing for like feeling the end coming because like the season didn't change you know um and like I, i I was like incapable of understanding what was happening because I just didn't know what time of year it was. I mean, it was like made me a weird person. Like, <laughs> but I would, weird. I would, I will say this. I feel like because people will often be like, "Well, I need the seasons," and I get it. I grew up in the Midwest too, so I, I totally they exist under- everywhere, right? Yeah, I was just gonna say that. Yeah. Like, I think living in the desert, it takes a while, or took me a while, yeah. to realize that there are detectable seasons, even if they are different from our traditional like Midwestern ideas of them. But like, there's a fall, there is an autumn in Los Angeles, or at least, you know, it seems like it's shrinking or something every year, but yeah, well, it probably is. Yeah. Um, but like, I know that time of year, the, the Santa Ana winds kick up, the air smells a certain way. Um, obviously there's some leaves that fall and then desert winter is glorious. Like, yep. It's great. It's the best, right? When you're in yeah. like January, February, I imagine you must be loving it. Like it's just, uh, especially after a rain, like the rare rains that blow through, like the mm-hmm. way that the desert smells after a rain. Ah, oh, so good. So good, yeah. right? You know? yeah. And I didn't know that. You know, these are things I didn't know until I, I lived out here. But I don't know. There's little signs and, and I guess like the, the changes, uh, you know, that we normally associate with seasons aren't maybe as dramatic here or there as they are in other places, but they're not non-existent. Yeah. And the, sometimes they are like, I mean, we have the, I'm sure you have these in LA too. Like every couple of years you have like a super bloom in the spring, you know, there's enough water came during monsoon season or something. And like the whole desert lights up, you know, and it's not just the flowers, even like the grasses and stuff get big and they, and they kind of stay all year. They get dry and then they stay. And I mean, it's a completely different, desert the year we have a super bloom than another one and uh you might you know it's like a weird thing it's a different cycle it's like maybe this is going to happen this year and you're kind of waiting to see and you know when it is um i feel like i didn't notice the saguaros blooming maybe the first couple of years i was here but it seems really weird because it's really dramatic but it was like they were just cactus you know right and then i was like now like i just watch it happen week after week to sort of change to them and how they put their flowers on and how the fruits come and and it's like how did I miss this? I was hiking just as much the first couple of years. Right. Like, why didn't I, why didn't I see it? And it just didn't even occur to me. I don't know if it occurred to me that they flowered. Like, you know, like I don't know that I understood that cactus did that, you know, it was sort of wild. Like, cause it wasn't a tree. I didn't know what it was doing, you know? Um, yeah. 
do you find when you go other places that you see more than you used to there? Because like when I go home to Michigan, I feel really lit up. Like it's now it's maybe the contrast or coming back or the way I taught myself to see the desert is now like a form of attention. I just bring back to the place I'm from. And I just feel like like I go my dad is like hunting land. I'll go out there and like work with him on it. And I just see so much more than I did seven years ago when I was there. And I can't tell if I'm just like a little quieter brain come a little older if I'm just sort of more willing to be out there in it or something. But it does feel like training myself to see the desert has helped me see home too, um, which I guess is great. I mean, it's sort of that's the ideal that that would happen. I like that theory because I, like I say, it's a subtler, it requires a subtler attention to notice the differences um, that are very real. They're just not as in your face. It's like, oh, the, like the, you know, every deciduous tree in the entire region just turned orange. You know? like, <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to miss autumn or whatever, the change of seasons in the Midwest. But yeah. um, I don't know. I think part of it too is quieter brained, having a love of nature. Like I like to pay attention to these yeah. things, you know, and it seems like you're the same way. And, um, I love going back to the Midwest. I think maybe having that baseline familiarity with it from my childhood. And I mean, you mm -hmm. have it from the first 30 some odd years of your life. Like, I don't know, maybe you see it anew, like you go back and it's all familiar, but it's all foreign all at the same mm -hmm. time. Yeah. I think it feels, um, you know, there's so much, uh, especially yeah, I was home a couple of weeks ago, uh, to see my parents for a couple of weeks after, you know, not being able to travel for a year and a half. And I hadn't been home in a long time. And it was uh, even more dramatic just from having it withheld for a while, you know, in a certain way that was and just the relief of being there. You know, I, I don't know if you've gone to travel or, or see your, your folks or family after the pandemic, but I think the way in which kind of reentering some of those places after this dramatic year and a half we've had is like it was both wild and mundane at the same time so easy to sit in my parents' house or visit my aunts and uncles or something. And also felt like we were never going to do it again. So like, it just feels very like lit up um, in a way that I, I, I hope doesn't normalize too fast. Like it'd be nice for those things to feel special for a long time um, mm -hmm. as opposed to like, Oh, I got to go home for Christmas and see my phone. <laughs> <laughs> and the, you know, it's because it, it travels a drag sometimes too, but like, it's nice that it feels uh, spectacular in a certain way. Um, the best is source of wonder to sort of be in this place, I, a house I've been in for 40 years, you know? Yeah. And I think the time of year that you went, I mean, that part of the country in early summer is just glorious and uh, coming out of like 120 degree heat and to suddenly be, are, are you in where I'm trying to remember where you grew up is it in upper Michigan or. No, I grew up in like mid Michigan near like Saginaw and Bay city. And I grew up in a t small town called Hemlock. Um, so sort of uh, maybe like 20 minutes from two, like 60,000 person cities, but like a really small town. Um, but it was great. You know, I was there. My parents live on the country and I was there uh, right at like apple blossom season, which felt like a nice thing at, after work on this book, you know, and um, was there the day where the wind comes through and just blows all the apple blossoms off at once. Right. Like it just happens in this like they're there and then they're not. And it was sort of a it was a neat uh, I don't know, like a nice coda sort of to like that kind of thing to be there for that. And, uh, um, I came home and planted trees with my dad on his hunting land the first day I was there and then, you know, watched his apple blossoms blow away. And I was like, all right, I felt like a good capper to this, you know, thing I've been working on for <laughs> this a long is, time. This is very Instagrammable. I feel like, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. 
it was a weird like post research, right? Like it's like I'm like, oh wait, no, now I know how apple tree planting goes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I just got to say, um, as we consider all of this stuff around climate change and what kind of future we might be facing, that uh, please advise your parents not to sell their land to Bill Gates and uh, right. keep that yes. land. You're gonna, you might need it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's gonna be. Uh, I, you know, I keep trying to lobby in my family. I'm like. I feel like Northern Latitude land is it's a good investment right now. Forget about investing in Apple, you know, speaking right. of apples. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think like you got to go try to find a, a patch of real estate someplace near a lot of fresh water and biodiversity. And yeah, even then it's going to be a mess. Bad. But I mean, yeah. it's your best shot, right? Yeah, I think that's probably going to be true. Yeah, that's going to be the nurse time. So are you... Um, are you working, you mentioned earlier, you said you couldn't say too much about it, but are you, you're working on another book at this point? Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know how the sort of publishing speed goes, right? You know, so I've sort of been working on something else for maybe a year and a half now. Um, going well, I think, you know. Um, but yeah, getting in that sort of deep, like second draft-ish kind of thing, you know, which feels like when the work really, really gets done for me. Um, so it's a good phase. Uh, I think one of my goals, you know, publishing wise is always to be deep in something about the time the book, new book, last book is coming out. Right. I mean, I think, you know, I don't, Appleseed comes out in 13 days from right now. Um, hitting this place with nothing on the page is like a dire, dire feeling. You know, you sort of have this like, I'm never going to write again. You feel distracted and weird. Um, and so having this other, uh, you know, world in progress to sort of go hang out in is is a real joy at this stage. And is it in, is it cli-fi? Like, is it, uh, that, that kind of. I think of... so still. Um, and I, I can say this, this doesn't seem like a, an odd thing to say. Yeah, my not talking about it is the, uh, I don't know if this happens to you, but it, when I'm working on a book, uh, in the middle of it, it takes me like a half hour to tell somebody what it's about. And then like, you know, the day the book comes out, it'll take me 30 seconds. Right. It's just one of those things where like, it's hard to talk about without getting in the weeds. Um, but yeah, so it's still sort of ecological in scope. Um, also, uh, this type of set on uh, on a different planet, so writing something more like purely, purely speculative. Um, it felt really hard to write another like near future Earth book right after writing one. You know, like it just it seemed almost impossible. The idea of like inhabiting that space directly again, um, or even weird. Like I think I'm still kind of living in Appleseed's one, right? It'd be like inventing another future. It felt really difficult. Um, and so some of what I was talking about before about like getting to design things differently or, or getting to solve some problems while focusing on these other ones is sort of interesting. Um, but maybe getting to do something a little more, um, purely fantastical and sort of invented from the ground up, which has been really fun. It's sort of something I haven't done before. Um, everything's always been set in a version of our, our world. So it's been neat to sort of have its own sort of fully immersive space has been a good time. And, you know, of course, like, you're like, am I good at this? Do I know how to do this? You know, so. <laughs> all, all those fun thoughts, right? Yeah. Which is, I think, you know, you should always feel that a little bit, right? You know, sort of like it, the book should feel impossible until it becomes possible. You know. Well, I uh, certainly had a sense reading Appleseed of um, how you might have felt. I mean, I certainly felt like how this, it felt impossible to me reading it to write something like this because of the <laughs> amount of mental work and imaginative work that goes into it. So kudos to you for rendering multiple worlds um, that feel palpably real and are peopled and otherwise, um, you know, by characters 
who are three-dimensional and um, somehow finding a way to kind of braid it all together. And I will be very interested to, I guess this would be your first extra, like fully extraterrestrial yeah. book. Yeah. So yeah, I don't even think I've done it in a short story. I think, you know, everything was probably pretty earth, but even if it seemed like super weird, it was probably that. So it feels good to sort of branch out. Um, yeah, it's a good thing. seems nice to sort of get to, uh, I think one of my like long-term writer goals is like to like write a book in like every genre I like. And as you know, sometimes I try to do five of them at once, but like, (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like, um, that seems like one way to keep things fresh is just to keep being like, Oh, I like this kind of book. I like this kind of book, like this kind of book. Let's keep branching out that way. So, uh, yeah, I feel like that's part of the challenge or part of the enjoyment that gets you the desk. Awesome. Well, congratulations to you. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me again. Glad we got to feature this one uh, in the book club and just wish you well the rest of the summer. Stay cool. Uh, also get some sleep. I mean, I know it's, right. it's nice to run in the desert, but like, you know, getting up at three forty-five. my God, you must Oh be no, I just go to bed at like eight 30 every night. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. Good. Uh, well, it's nice to touch base with you and hopefully next time around, uh, it's in person again, once we've fully moved beyond, uh, you know, this phase of existence that. that we've been in. Yeah. Thanks so much, Brad. All right, folks, there you have it. That is Matt Bell, and his new novel, Appleseed, is available from Custom House Books, the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Matt on the internet at mattbell.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at mdbell. What is it? Let me see. At mdbell79. Again, the novel is called Appleseed. Available right now. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive of this show, more than 700 episodes and counting, is available to you, the listener, free of charge. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this program, if you listen regularly and you get something from it and you have the means... I hope you'll consider supporting the show. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. For as little as a dollar a month, you can support this show. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff. You can get a tote bag, a t-shirt, a coffee mug. I will wish you a happy birthday. I'll write you a postcard. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod if you were so inclined to tip your server. If you have something to say to me, you can write to me. The email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. The Other People podcast has its own app. It, too, is free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go get it wherever you get your apps. This program also has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? The Other People with Brad Listy YouTube channel is now on YouTube. Track it down and smash the subscribe button. Another great way to support this show is to rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher or Spotify or wherever. Rate it and review it. It helps other listeners find the show when you do that sort of thing. Okay? I think that's it. Who's up next? I don't know.